I am happy to join with you today and will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream, deeply ruined the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together to tear a brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of skin, but by the content of their character. dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious races and its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right here in Alabama little black girls and little black boys will be able to join hands with little white girls and little white boys as brothers and sisters. Speeches by Prophets. So we're doing Speeches by Prophets um, as the next speech series. Uh, so I'm batting lead off as usual. So I just I wanted to get us a nice solid bass hit. So I was thinking about lead, uh, Speeches by Prophets. Um, first thought, I don't, know, I don't know what you guys did. My first thought was like, oh, religious people or people that like predict the end of the world coming at a certain date. But then... Um, I switched just because um, I'm doing the Bible in a Year podcast still, and I was just kind of thinking about how when in the prophet sections of the scriptures, a lot of them are actually, I mean, some are like talking about the future, but a lot of them are just kind of speaking to the current time, I guess, if that makes sense, and what they should be doing differently. And so, I don't know, that kind of got me thinking about this, and um, yeah, Dr. King's speech is the first one that came to my mind, and I thought that there wouldn't be a better one to to lead off with for speeches by prophets. So we've got Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream. Yeah. I mean, I think that to sort of put a fine point, as I like to say, um, yeah, I mean, I think prophet, yeah. Speaking, speaking of how, not just how the future will be, if you're Nostradamus, but, but how the future future ought to be, I think is kind of within the same, same scope of that. Um, I want to give proper credit as well here for the speech series to my father, Rich Schaefer. 
um, because he he's been wanting to hear the speech guys talk about climate change. And yeah, there was the episode on Greta Thunberg that's been lost to the digital cloud, um, not accessible. So as far as everyone's concerned, this speech guy's speech on climate change doesn't exist. So we need a a good topic that could touch on that, give us the opportunity to touch on that. And Speeches by Prophets, I thought, could give us that as well as some uh, some arteries of discussion into some other um, unique pathways. So I'll, I'll be taking a, uh, a quote-unquote climate change prophet when that uh, time comes, which is next episode. <laughs> real quick. But for now, but for now, Dr. King. So, sorry, real quick. Back to Rich. Um... So just like, did he specifically tell you that, or is he like just brought it up casually, or, or has he, he been like he's brought it up more than one really? time, two to three times? Does he have like speeches in mind, or does he just want the topic? Uh, no, he didn't have a speech in mind. He he always articulates it as, "I want you guys to address the question of why don't Republicans believe in climate change." <laughs> All right. So we'll we'll explore that. Got to put that one on the table right now. I don't think Dr. King talked about climate change didn't know what it was climate change only existed in the mind of a fringe scientist at the Mauna Loa observatory in Hawaii (laughs) oh gosh Dr. King all right back to King all right so um what's the earliest your guys's memories go back like I I can remember I don't have like specific memories I remember obviously I was talking about him um you know helped in the civil rights obviously it was huge in the civil rights movement but i remember it being like a thing in school but i never remember like a report or a project or something really in depth we had to do i just remember it being like a thing yeah it it being a thing that's a really accurate way to characterize it which yeah you know, uh, i i hate to say sad because that's because it's so hard being the teacher and expecting like perfection from teachers give you this perfectly complex, nuanced <laughs> portrait of reality. Um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I mean, I think that in, in the perfect world, yeah, we should have more more takeaways from the Dr. Martin King uh, unit from school. Although, I mean, I do remember more fairly more on like slavery and the Civil War, things like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, the extent of my grade school takeaway. I don't remember listening or hearing, watching the speech on TV like, uh, Rachel did. Apparently. I do remember the big TV on the wheels though, that they had to bring it on the cart. Just that was great. in yeah. general. Oh that yeah. Good, yeah. <laughs> that was like bringing in crack cocaine <laughs> to <the> class. <laughs> so I would say like. I mean, I, I, I don't have any real specific Martin Luther King takeaways. Um, but I think in part because, like, I feel like we did cover it, like, every single year in, like, some way, shape, or form. Like, pretty much from, I mean, I couldn't tell you, like, when we first did it, maybe, like, second or third grade on. Um, which, I th- yeah, I think that might be why it makes, it's hard for me to, like, just pick, like, oh, yeah, this was the day we learned about this. Because, like. I think, I don't know, I think our school did do a pretty good job of discussing it and making it, like, very, um, yeah, just being honest about, like, just the dark history we have. But I do remember, 
I, I guess a couple things that did stand out, like one is like when my parents would talk to me about it, they, like, I guess they just, I mean, there is a, a, um, a kid who lived down the street, like played with him a lot named Jeffrey. Um, he's black. And like, that was kind of like how they would refer to things like, you know, like, yeah, some people might treat, uh, Jeffrey really poorly just cause their skin color is different. And obviously like just how bad that is. And as a kid, like, it's very obvious, like, well, yeah, why, why would they do that? You know? And, um, yeah, like I think the message message was very basic, but like, you know, not a lot of nuance or anything like you mentioned, you know, Mike, but like, yeah, for a kid, I don't know if you need it. Like, I think it's pretty straightforward. Right. Um, and they get it, you know, at least I remember definitely getting it and being like, um, I remember learning about slavery and like just being actually like horrified and like, you know, like Mm. visualizing like, you know, other classmates like being treated that way, you know, like, yeah, it was just like a really, yeah, I just remember that specific image kind of like sticking out. Do you remember like what, do you remember like ballpark how old you were when that stuff was going on? Like when your parents were having those discussions and stuff? I would guess third or maybe fourth grade, but fairly young. Um, yeah, so last year, so my son Thomas is in, um, well, last year he was in pre-K, he was five years old and they had to make like Martin Luther King, they weren't puppets, like they kind of like they had to use different pieces of the construction paper and like you know so it's kind of like a puppet I guess and I kind of just remember thinking like he brought it home and like he made it and had a blast you know doing the craft or whatever but no idea who he was you know sure and it's just like I just found it like hard to like I was like I don't know how to tell you about him without referencing all these things that it's just hard to talk to a five-year-old about you know what I mean sure why is this guy cool it's like well he fought like I don't know like I just found it kind of difficult to like navigate the how do I explain to you that why this person was important when like all these topics are just so um, hard to talk about to a kid that's five years old. So I don't I don't remember how we did it. Honestly, we probably, you know, try to we probably like vaguely glanced over it, but didn't go into very much detail. Um, but that just kind of stuck with me like, oh, these you know, he's making this craft and has no idea who this guy is. It is interesting to sort of bridge that <clears throat> observation and Matt's observation with uh, his acquaintance or friend, Jeffrey. Friend? What became of Jeffrey? Friend, yeah. No, we were, yeah, we were friends. Okay. Um, yeah, didn't hang out as much in, like, middle school and high school, but as, like, kids, we were really good friends. Um, yeah, the, the idea of, like, rate, like, the idea of race, it is sort of like a very abstract thing, I feel like, in in the way that, like, it contributes to, or it, like, it feeds the concept of racism. Because I'm just, sort of like, thinking thinking about how, like, racism sort of, like, works in the brain. How it, se- how it seems to work is that you're judging a person based upon, like, past experiences, or past, um, um, not even necessarily experiences. You could say like perceived societal experiences of that group, right? Like that idea in itself like requires time in order to create that perception. Versus, like, it it's versus a child. Like, there's there's no time to accumulate those kinds of perceptions. So you're just dealing with knee-jerk reaction that they look different 
um, which, yeah, have 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 we ever seen a five year old racist? That's sort of an interesting question to think about. To, to put like a practical example on your point a little bit, kind of back to my kids' school. So uh, my son's in kindergarten, and my right now my daughter's in pre K, and like they have kids of other ethnicities in their classes. But if you were to try to ask them a question like, like I don't know, like, hey Thomas, are there any black kids in your class or something like that? I don't think he would know. Like I don't think he he wouldn't be like, oh yeah, like this kid. Is. You know, what I mean, he would be like, what, like, what, like what? And he'd probably start. He might figure it out. Like if I was like, oh, you know, is, is their skin different? Like I, I think we could get there. But like if I just said that, I don't think, I really don't think he would really know what to say or, you know, what the question was even about. So. You know, I think maybe one might say, you know, let, let's well, actually let's first give our like qualifier that we'd sort of like touched on the outline that we are. We are. If you guys didn't guess it, three white guys talking about race. You know, it's like we cert. I think we all agree. We don't want to be the guys saying, well, this is actually how it is. Right. Um but I, I think, based upon what we sort of jotted down the outline, I feel like there are things, even just what we've shared so far, that do speak more directly to personal experience that can, that can hopefully maybe shed some light without us sounding like, uh, sounding like douchebags. Um, okay, okay. So, if I were to, like, articulate the nature of black history in the United States, it would look something like, you know, slavery, end of slavery to civil rights, and then civil rights to present day. How would you guys articulate that era between civil rights and present day? Like, how would you describe that? Racially speaking, obviously, not like just... How's the economy been doing? <laughs> are you talking? Yeah, I guess it seems like a rather broad. Quite like, are you, like, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are we? You you can comment on that. Um, I or like. I guess yeah. I'm not sure what. So I feel like you know, a lot of our comments on our outline, thoughts, observations, interesting fodder is sort of getting at that transition between where um, African Americans, you know, gain equal rights under the law, right, post-civil rights or immediately after civil rights, to this observation that we have as a society, which I marked down, like, is, is a good observation, where outcomes... Uh, socioeconomic outcomes are just not perfectly or even all of that closely represented amongst each, you know, say there's, say there's 30% African Americans in the United States. Okay, well, then why are not 30% of neuroscientists African Americans, right? And in 1968, like, I don't know, I'm sure some people cared about that question, but right, the more pertinent things was you know equal rights under law versus now we are at that point of answering that sort of question and i think that how 
this the sort of like scope of our sort of interesting thoughts on the outline that we started sort of running with is how do we go about in a in a way that is sustainable in a way that honors the dignity of all different kinds of people of answering that question of the dissonance in equal outcomes in society why is it that i've only had probably like a handful of black acquaintances in my life right versus i've come across you know hundreds or thousand black people in my life or something like that like what what are the things happening in society within us that are are of interest and worthwhile discussing here that that sort of seems like the crux of our commentary and sort of the crux that's at the um the sort of fight for the for the soul of the nation if you will i feel like you answered your first question and then asked a much harder one (laughs) yeah i mean i'm just i'm sort of trying to like just bridge the gap between martin luther king and sort of things that things that we wanted to talk about but at the same time you wanted to talk a little bit about civil rights stuff too so we can always just go back to that and come come back to this horse another way i'm not sure so in one sentence ask your second question well, I feel like there's a lot it's, of it's, background. It's not even necessarily just a question. I guess it's just trying to give us a different, or to give us a, a platform for commenting on some of the things we jotted down. The outline is that I feel like the way we go about describing 1968 to present day is sort of um dictates the kind of the manner in which we go about answering some of these questions which we died down the outline right these sort of not racism as a function of um legality but racism as a function of uh different outcomes society and outcomes yeah okay sure sure my first thought, I mean, I don't know if this, I think this is kind of getting at what you're saying at least is like, it seems like, yeah, you can fix the laws, but with how much time and just culture and wealth and just how much had gone in before the laws changed, you know, in the civil rights movement, like, it seems very difficult to just undo all of that quickly if that makes sense. So, like, we, you said, like, okay, why is there not equal outcomes? Um, I mean, I think we probably, people probably know why. I mean, it, you know, because of the wealth was in a certain place for a long time. These people didn't have the same opportunities for a long time. Things take generations to um, kind of not fix them, not fi- get fixed, but it just seems like when when you have that much, like, rooted problems it seems like it's it's hard to expect that to get fixed quickly so i would be like when you talked i don't know like when you said the outcomes or you know how many african-american acquaintances and things like that i would just be my first guess would be it's probably i would guess it's moving in the right direction it's just not moving as fast as we would like is my first thought 
And I know there's like, part of the problem is there's so many ways you can measure that. You know, if you're trying to like use specific data points, like I'm looking at um, a Pew Research thing. I didn't put it, this in the article. I just kind of found it just now because I was curious. But um, 1970, so very shortly after like civil rights um, legislation is passed, the um, the percentage income gap, basically black people made 56% um, of the income of white people. This is just broadly. This isn't adjusting for similar jobs or anything like that. This is just broad population, all incomes of all jobs of all people. Um, <clears throat> and in 2018, actually, this will be a good quiz question. What do you oh, think man. it is? Yeah, 2018. That's it's the most recent data, at least oh, on this. What was the, what, so what was the yet, first Ross. number you said? So in 1970, black people made 56% of what white people made. And again, this is not this is gross numbers, not adjusted for um, like similar work or anything. Um, <clears throat> what do you think that was in 2018? Okay, I got my guess ready. I got a guess. Seventy-three percent. Right. One, two, three. Say it. Seventy-eight percent. Oh, okay. Sixty-one. <laughs> oh wow! Huh. And it looks at least according to this, I think they said the highest. The highest it's ever been was in 2007, and that was 63%. Huh. Um, and that could have changed. Yeah, I don't have – there's no data beyond 2018, at least not on this thing. But So it's always been – and just they have a graph, and it's like basically whenever like one goes up, the other goes up, and the other one goes down. Like it's it's been yeah. very – hmm. yeah, very much in, in lockstep. Um, and I know that I've seen – I haven't found any data right now but i know like income is one thing but wealth is another mm -hmm. and that's something where like i know white folks um like really like go way way over like it, the difference is a lot bigger when you look at like wealth and um like ownership of things you know whether it's businesses or stocks or you know homes and whatever like wealth that gets passed down to generation um is much like the difference is not even close um, with those types of measures. So all it is to say, like, um, yeah, I mean, it's the type of thing that's hard to measure um, just because there's so many different data points you could take. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's still, like, no doubt, like, um, yeah, not even, not even particularly close. Ross, we should probably listen to a little bit of Martin Luther King. All right. Yeah, let's let's go to the speech and see what that yeah. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves. 
who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. Does I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Yes. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. Not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spirit. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. First thoughts, would you, was, is that two excerpts that would have stuck out to you guys in the speech? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the the content of their character right. line, I was probably yeah, probably one of the more quoted excerpts of that speech. Um, yeah, I, I think. think so. I mean, I feel like a lot of people probably see the, um, you know, little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers holding joining hands. Like that's just kind of like an easy to picture thing. So I feel like that's an easy one to like latch onto. But I think I feel like in the outline, you guys really did a good job of jumping into the. I mean, I don't remember what part you kind of kind of jumped on it from, but the kind of the idea of the content of their character, you guys talked a lot about, um, like, judging people's hearts. Who, which one of you kind of brought that up first? Okay. I thought, I don't know, I yeah, felt like I'm just kind of, like you know, as we made the outline and reading through it and making additions and stuff, I felt like that was a kind of a good run. So, Mike, kind of summarize that for us. Um. Okay, I, I will. Let me step back one slightly further. I guess along the same line, I mean, what sticks out to me about that speech, I mean, is just the poetry of it, right? Which communicates <clears throat> um, just parts, like, 
a particular level of seriousness with which he approaches the topic, right? It's like, obviously he gave, preparing a message in the form of poetry or any sort of art form, right? You have to have the message, right? But you also need to have the care and methodology to wrap it up in this art, which is really moving and inspiring, right? And you think about other um, social and political leaders of today, like how artful are they in their communication? And what does that say about the extent to which they actually, to extent to which their topic like resonates in their heart in any way, right? Um, granted, it's not, not like you can just be speaking poetry every time you give a speech, then you just look crazy, but, but, you know, every, every once in a while, right, there's a certain, like, thing there to it, um, okay, yeah, going on to, like, that, thinking in a sort of different way about that content of character comment. I mean, one, I guess, one aspect of it that I remember you brought up, Mike, um, is just, like, trying to think of this in terms of, like, what does a race conversation look like? Or what does interacting with someone with a different ra- of a different race look like without being like um, you're just negating their race? You know what I mean? Like yeah. kind of instead like instead of just ignoring that aspect of a person and trying not to let that come out in your discussion with them. Like what a, like what else would it look like? Like how are you de- how would you describe it in a positive way? And I thought I don't know if that's like. And, like, just judging, like, the content of their character seems to me, like, like, yeah, that's a good way to do it. But at the same time, like, even more, um, yeah, I think there is something deeper that you could even go than that. Um, and just, like, oh. yeah, just, like, looking at the very, like, center, the core, the deepest, you know, and really that just has to do with, like, relationships and, like, getting to know people and, like, actually investing in others, um, like, no matter their race, I guess. Um and perhaps that's why, like, MLK is so timeless. But um. yeah, how do you how do you train another person? You know, most significantly, like your child, to be able to come in contact into contact with another person's heart. And there's all these other these kinds of like different obstacles that we encounter on our way, along the way, depending upon what what the circumstance is for your interaction or all these different things, right? Like, like, like sexual morality gives us like a certain code of conduct, conduct to be able to engage freely and purely with the heart of another woman, right? But we don't use, I mean, some set of rules overlap, but a lot of the rules are just not the same. They're, they're different for how we, train ourselves to come to the contact with the heart of like my grandma or something like that right like like a good example good example of well i'll set the one off to the side and with with race yeah it's like there are i think that a lot of the conversation the modern conversation that tries to get at racism which of course we all agree is a really important thing like how do we reduce racism great fantastic wonderful but i think that the language it seems is very like negative don't be a microaggressor and don't 
or or sort of if this isn't stated negative but it has a negative tone like re repent of your white privilege right that's like another sort of a doctrine of um modern anti-racist conversation right but but again these things they're almost like they're they're almost like really far away from the heart of a person they're just these negative negative th it's almost like um trying to solve poverty just by like giving a bunch well no that's a bad example um i mean i think they are like academic abstractions yeah. to some degree yeah of like the a real issue you know of, of like a real phenomena you know and it, it, i think yeah to more the more to some degree the more you abstract it um, which is something like martin luther king does not do at all like mm -hmm. he treat like it's like all right this is what it looks like you know our sons and daughters walking together you know this is what it looks like you know we don't have one race that's living in abject poverty like this is what it looks like we have you know equal rights under the law um yeah, like those aren't abstractions. Yeah, okay. So I, I've, <laughs> you know, I've, but like have, there's a lot of vagary. I have a story or set of illustrations. Wait, it's gonna sound like I'm tooting my horn, but it I think it sort of make makes the point. Um, so one of one of my my black acquaintance friends in my life was uh, our house cleaner named Diane at the uh, house I lived with with some guys because it was in in Opus Day House. So, um. Anyway, Diane sort of rough around the edges woman and jumping ahead to the crooks of the story, she invited us to her birthday party. I know you guys have heard this story, but for, for the audience, you know, I think she was turning 60 or something. So huge party, probably like 150, 200 people there. And me and Danny McShane, Father McShane, and a couple of other friends walk into her party that Friday night. And... Yeah, we were literally the only white people, four of us. Well, one of them was Spanish, European Spanish. So <laughs> I don't know. And then maybe like two other random white people we didn't know, right? And, you know, it's like, yeah, your knee-jerk reaction at some level is that you're sort of uncomfortable because it's a, di it's a very different environment. It's like, this isn't the kind of music I listen to. This isn't usually <laughs> the kinds of, like, conversations here in your background. It's like... But you just sort of, like, do a quick check, like, how would they act at a party? You say hello to the person whose birthday it is. You make small talk with some people, and, and that's it, right? So at the end of the night, when we were sort of getting ready to leave, we were waiting to take a picture with Diane, and there was this guy who was in the corner, and uh, he said something to Danny, and Danny, like, didn't hear him. He's like, what? What'd you say? And the guy grabs Danny and he pulls him in. He says, y'all making history. <laughs> and it's like, I, I can, I might dare say, there's a lot of people, I, I'd hate to say it this way, but I think it's, it seems like a, a point that's just, like, right in front of you. There's a lot of people who would just be very, sensitive to like going into that environment and being afraid to do the wrong thing or something like goofy like that who would think of themselves as like very anti-racist but going into that situation with a mind to like the heart of diane like she wanted us to come to her birthday party there's no reason not to go might be a little bit different but that's it 
like the end there's there's no dra- and you know and they have a nice time with diane you know she felt hopefully appreciated that we we're there and we we're glad to go and you know it's a, it's a fun story and obviously the guy who pulled danny in the corner like got a kick out of it too it's like I guess I'd like to hear you guys say something about like that that <laughs> sensitivity there, because Matt, you sort of made a similar comment to it in other things like that. That sensitivity is being like a certain simultaneous um, benchmark of an anti-racist, specifically a white anti-racist, but a like hindrance at the same time too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Um... Yeah, and I, I think that, like, the Martin Luther King paradigm, um, it, I think it can be oversimplified because I think that there's the, I think there's, like, the colorblind, quote-unquote, model of avoiding racism, which I think is kind of, like, another iteration of that, like, negative that, you know, you're just abstracting from the situation their race and just trying to, you know, so it's another layer of fakeness, yeah. you know? Which I think is a valid critique, like the, the modern kind of anti-racist, um, uh, I don't know what to call it, like mindset or whatever, um, makes. Yeah, I think that's a very valid critique because like people are white, people are black, people are Hispanic, people are all these things. Um, so like, yeah, instead of ignoring or avoiding someone's race, like it might be an avenue to wor- learn about like their heart, you know, and like go into a party where you're like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've got more experience with that in like his, the Hispanic world. Um, just, and, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, but there's also this sort of like anti-racist preoccupation with microaggressions and like, I feel like that, um, but at the same time, like it kind of bites off like this, this hypersensitivity kind of bites off the, the, trying to understand the heart of an individual, right? Like, um, I know an example, like, uh, I've heard just in a different circum, like someone, someone's at someone's job. I, a, a friend of mine, like made a comment, um, uh, or coworker of theirs made a comment about someone, a, a black woman's hair. Like, I don't know what, if it was braids or an Afro or, or what kind of hairdo it was, but they're like, Oh, what a, what a fun hairdo. And apparently that was like taken ill which like might be fair i don't know like i don't know Uh, i don't know exactly what the person said or how they said it whatever but um but at the same time like is that not potentially an avenue to like understand someone you know yeah um so and i think that there's i there's like an npr article um that i came across about just with um an anti-racist scholar, if you will, I guess, of some sort. Um, he was referenced, I can't remember his name, I'll look it up. But he was referenced in a couple different articles, actually, that I came across. Um, the link isn't working right now, so... Whatever. But, um, like, one of the things they commented on, like, is that there's the risk of interacting with black people and, like, having conversations with them about race to be, like, them doing homework right um so like you don't want to burden someone with like an interaction about um a microaggressive topic or whatever um or you don't want to burden someone with all these like different references to the to their race but at the same time it's like 
well, how are we supposed to learn? You know, how are we supposed to know the person? How are we supposed to, you know, you're cutting off all these avenues of knowledge and getting to the heart of someone to the point where it's like, we're supposed to, we're not supposed to ask provocative questions and, but we are supposed to know the answers of those questions without asking them. And we're also supposed to know all the things that might offend someone, but we're not allowed to ask what offends them because that would be exhausting for them to explain it. So in order to know what offends them, we need to read, you know, these woke books or whatever. And, but we definitely shouldn't confirm what we get in those books with real people because we don't want to, you know, but uh, then we also can't assume that the content of those books is true for everybody. So like, it makes this (laughs) really untenable, really like convoluted and um, just like a fake interaction. You know, if you're talking about like, you know, being real with someone or being, kind of guarded and fake and like not getting to their heart, you know, um, there's just so many layers of like awkwardness, I think in the modern, um, critique of all this, that, that just gets, it, it makes, um, getting to the heart of someone like untenable almost, you know, if, um, if we're supposed to be treading on this water, but it's not like there's nothing to some of those things too, but, um, which that might be an interesting question to, to go to, maybe not now, but at some point, like, what is the anti-racist perspective get right? Yeah. Because I think but, there is something yeah, there, too. Because yeah. um, I, I think we, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to critique some of that in um, contrast to Martin Luther King, but I think there is some stuff there, too. One thing, I mean, a couple things, I guess, you guys have said, um, but thinking of, like, the heart of a person and you know, interactions. And like, as, as Matt, as you were describing that, I was like, it seems like it would in my head make more sense to learn from a person as opposed to from a book. Um, if we're really trying to help people. Um, but it kind of, I don't, I don't remember who said this might've been mother Teresa, but like, I'll try to make it connect, but, um, something, the effect of it's really easy to love the poor, but it's hard to love the poor person standing next to you. Um, mm. And I yeah. think it's kind of like a similar idea. Like, it's really easy to say, yeah. like, oh, yeah, I give to charity or I, I help poor people or I do this. But it's then, like, actually loving that poor person. Like, I just feel like it's easy. And I mean, I'm including myself and probably all of us and all people. Like, it's easy to say I want to help the poor and then think a judgmental thought when you see a poor person, if that makes sense. Or somebody begging for money or something like that. Um so I feel like in that context, like, obviously she was a big believer that it's important to, like, interact with the person instead of this broad idea or this group that we don't really know. Um, and I kind of feel like it's kind of similar with kind of, I think, Matt, like the point you're making, like, if we really want to, you know, put a stop to it and help these, like, connect the dots of why are the outcomes still so different and all of, all of that, like, it seems like the interacting with the person is much more is like like you said like is more important and should be almost you know that should almost be the route we take as opposed to you know like the you can't ask the person these questions you need to go learn it somewhere else you know abstractly or something like that so there's sort of an interesting parallel <clears throat> i feel like between yeah what you said about the poor um just sort of feeling self-conscious goopy (laughs) like black people um i just anytime you encounter someone who looks different 
and and non-Catholics, okay? So there's a way of, like, thinking about each of these three groups that has a certain, like, relationship, I think, that can, that can illuminate sort of maybe some of the ideas that we're getting at. Like with the poor homeless person. Um, like there's... Gosh, I, I hate... There's a lot of people, not us, you know. I know that's sort of what it sounds like, but it's like... You're just speaking. You're speaking from you know what you experience. I can observe in myself. Maybe like if I'm in a bad mood. Okay, there you go. If I'm in a bad mood, if if I encounter like a poor person standing outside Walmart or some homeless person standing outside Walmart, if I'm in a bad mood, I might like treat them as a homeless person, in the sense of just like, sorry, not today. And, I mean, you know, probably bare minimum of, like, eye contact and brief smile or something like that. But the point is, is, like, I'm treating them, like, first is homeless person demographic. And you don't even have time to, like, get at, like, the heart of the person there and whatever you have time for. Um, versus when, when I do have the time and energy, right, finding that that clarity and clarity of mind to treat them as first another person right where it's like you make the handshake like, hey hey what's going on man you know what's what's your name what do you need right as if as if it was just matt standing outside that warrant oh hey matt what, what are you doing here what's going on what's up you know and keep opening opening that pathway to whatever conversation that person needs right okay moving on from poor person to like non-catholic person right there's there's moments in our lives where it's like you really, especially like when we're younger, like you really want to evangelize. So you want you want to give them the deposit of faith. Bam. And so you see them first and foremost as a non-Catholic or a non-Christian. And because of that, you're seeing them as this this broad demographic. And you don't really have meaningful access to their heart because because that, that's not what a person... A person isn't not Catholic first. They're Brandon, you know, who has blue eyes and is standing right there in front of you. And that, that's what you start with, right? Or the poor person, you know, they're, you know, similar example, right? And I think, I think, I don't know, it just seems this way. A certain, like, parallel with... You know, the, the black person that you come across in your life, they're not, generally speaking, black first. They're this dude or dudette standing in the midst of you, right, to to encounter in, in whatever way. Um, I don't know. Do you guys, do you guys get a sense of those, the, the similarities, the parallels between those, those three things? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I see what you're saying. I feel like that sums it up pretty well um uh i was interested to see where you were going to go with the non-catholic example but i think you actually tied it in very well um but i think that gets a lot of what we were saying about like judging the heart of a person and mlk's you know content of their character um it's interesting i mean i i don't know i feel like we could tie it into a little bit of kind of I don't want to keep bashing the kind of anti-racist crowd, though, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could go another route there, but um, at the same time, like, it's hard um, 
to not talk about it. I, yeah, I'll, I'll transition it. Okay, it's it's hard to not talk about it when it's clearly a problem, though. So, like, um, like uh, you know, it, Matt gave that number about wealth or, or income, I think. It was not wealth, sorry, income. And I'm sure you could have, I mean, and obviously you can play with statistics all you want, but a lot of other things that, you know, show that, you know, the work's not done to end racism just because the laws um, have been changed. But so I feel like, it's hard to, you know, never talk about it and also address like a really a big problem. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of like, yeah, one of the big areas like, um, yeah, whether you want to call anti-racism or black lives matter or or whatever, um, like, yeah, whatever, like the modern movement is, um, yeah. Like I think it is very like powerfully, like making people aware of the echoes of more extreme racism in the past. Like, so I don't think any, any rational person would suggest that modern America is more racist than the 1960s. Okay. I thought you meant the opposite. And I was like, I think I'm rational, (laughs) but I think I disagree. Okay. Okay. Well, well, but okay. I, yeah, no, no, I, I don't know, Matt. I mean, I feel like a lot of, um, woke, uh, scholars, leaders would say, Maybe not more racist, I don't know, but just laterally racist. But it's you just, know, it just takes different forms. I know that, yeah, I know that language is used a lot, but I feel like that's, I don't know. I mean, there were there were laws in the books that allowed for explicit discrimination. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? Like, I'm just you can't clarifying. Get, you can't like get more racist than that. But yeah. but yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, I know there are some people who might say that we've only moved laterally um but i feel like people in those circles are few and far between like if you actually look at if you just talk to like you know the general population about it um but like it is very like it's definitely important to know like yeah we're not you know we're not done so to speak um and um yeah, like there are remnants of that, right? I would say it's more like ruins that need rebuilding as opposed to like, um, or like kind of repairs to the house. Like the house, maybe we built the house, if you want to call it like the, the civil rights movement and like ending legal discrimination. Like, all right, you build a house, but now you need to like maintain it and give it some updates and like keep the plumbing working, keep the, you know, update the electrical work and like whatever else. Because, um, yeah, like... It isn't, um, I mean, especially just like, I mean, most of my patients, uh, not most of my patients, uh, I did the math once over the course of a week, so relatively small sample size, but I, I think 40%, roughly 30 to 40% of my patients are black. And just talking a lot with them and hearing just some of their stories and just being aware of, um, I mean, just being in healthcare, like, yeah, I know what kind of insurance you have. Therefore, I know kind of generally how much money you make and like what kind of financial situation you're in. Like you just kind of have access to more of that demographic information about people. Like, yeah, there's no doubt black people are very, very disproportionately um, dealing with bigger problems. Um, yeah, just no doubt. And like their personal experience matters, you know, whether it's... Um, 
which is something that like I know some white people do get defensive about like the white privilege comments, but at the same time it's like that's kind of small change <laughs> compared to you know the the yeah the issues um, you know I guess in some you know some people kind of describe that as like reverse racism, but you know it's better than what black people dealt with you know and are, are dealing with. Um, and in terms of the sensitivity stuff, I guess this is another thing I do think like the anti-racism folks do get right is there is a valid level of discernment when having like a race conversation, right? So like I shouldn't expect, um, you know, one of my patients who I just have kind of surface level interactions with to like have a deep convo, right? If they go there, you know, with one or two in the last two years, maybe one or two have gone into down one of that, those routes, um, like sure if they kind of lead me there but but yeah like you just need to be validly discerning with that like just like any sensitive topic right i'm not gonna talk to a random person about their use of birth control <laughs> right like send them our that's podcast not, you know, episode first <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean it's yeah i mean you have to get to know their heart you know and then right. you know once you've done that maybe you can send them the podcast episode yeah so I'm going to try retying in something I'd said earlier to what you said. It's like, you know, the, the unequal outcomes thing, right. Is, is a very common refrain among, um, anti-racist folks. And it's like, yes, of course it is clear. Outcomes are not the same as you're, as you're recognizing or observing Matt. It's like, I feel like our country and our politics could go a long way if Republicans, God bless their soul, just said, yes, we wholeheartedly agree. Unequal outcomes are a bad thing, right? Unless you are an actual racist, everyone has to agree. <laughs> like, unequal outcomes are generally, generally a bad thing, unless there's some other explanation for it, right? I feel, I feel, and this, yeah, again, this sort of gets into, like, the nuances. I feel like the real difference between the rational person and, in this case, yeah, the, the woke person is that, yeah, we all agree unequal outcomes is a bad thing. Okay, now it's about how, I feel like calling everything racist is a very blunt tool, right? Because it's just, it's just not, I just... I don't think that it's always racism that necessarily explains like this. Maybe okay. Here, here's I think kind of a good example, the the microaggressions thing. It's like you said personal experience, Matt. Like yeah, you can't say that you're not experiencing that. Like well, that's what you experience. That but to say that it's aggression is like well that presumes that you know the intent of the person whom you're dealing with right aggressiveness like that's that's a choice that someone else makes but you can't possibly know what what their intent actually is even if it is actually a thing that they should not be doing um consciously or subconsciously like towards you um and it, yeah okay so to like tidy up my thought the point is is that i feel like there's a lot of traction that could because if we say that yeah we agree equal unequal outcomes is at the very least something to be taken very seriously um then a democrat could say okay you know what 
we consider this a problem and therefore we want to try doing this thing in order to solve this problem. And Republicans are going to say, yeah, we agree it's a problem, but we are going to do this thing in order to solve this, right? Like, is really the discussion between conservative and Democrat like whether something's a problem or not, or rather the manner in, or dictating the manner in which to solve the problem? <laughs> like, why Why is everything a matter of whether it's a problem or not? It's like, it should, yeah, manner in which it's, there, there's the problem. I think that, because I, I know that there are... Um... I think there is a valid critique of the like equal outcomes as like the the main goal simply because it is a I mean you mentioned like unless there's another explanation right, right? Yeah. so um, like which that is an important caveat and I think that's kind of the thing that people would argue about like I think some folks would say I mean the more liberal folks would say like there's there's no way either one there's no way that there's another explanation or two it doesn't even matter if even if there is yeah. another explanation because underneath that explanation is this kind of baseline like underlying kind of deep-rooted um phenomena yeah. of racism that's kind of really underpinning all of these things that we're looking at and like so we need the so the outcomes are all that matter right Whereas, like, the equal opportunity is kind of like the... the... So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are more valid arguments to be had. But, like, I don't think most people think about it philosophically like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, like... I remember listening on NPR you know, five or six months ago or something. They were talking about the equal outcomes thing specifically. And this guy they are interviewing, he literally said everything should be cross-section representation of population everything <laughs> and i would just be so I, I don't know we'd have to just sit the the woke individual down like do you really want do you really think it's the right thing to see 12 percent or you know whatever 30 percent of the nba is black people and 70 percent white like <laughs> no one no one would yep. want to watch that <laughs> I think the the t the difficult thing that I've run into with like the outcomes versus opportunities debate is like where outcome like of course everyone wants like I think everybody agrees everyone should have an equal opportunity like I think that one is the more universally agreed upon um, statement it's just outcomes then lead its more more or less opportunities right and I think right. that's kind of yeah. where things run into like it gets really hairy to try to like come up with like oh well this was their own fault so therefore whatever and like oh this actually wasn't their fault so yeah yeah we need to do something to correct it but then at the same time like is it naive to think that we can correct it you know that we can correct everything um or correct yeah i just think there are limitations to what are reasonably correctable um things you know thinking about the outcomes thing i mean well, first of all, to make a funny comment to Mike's, I think we should have more five, six white guys in the NBA because <laughs> there's probably been one in history and there's a lot more than one in the world. So um, I want my shot. Is that all I'm saying? Um, but no, just kidding. But 
I think with the outcomes thing, I guess Matt, I, <clears throat> to try to, I mean, I should have pitched this in sooner maybe, but um, like you said, maybe there's an underlying cause to the other factors. Maybe that would be their argument, the argument, but like just, I mean, how wealth plays into so many of the outcomes. So like, I would be interested to see statistics and I don't know, so I'd be open to see them, but like you said, right, it was 56% and now it's 63 or ish, like what percent of the wealth was held in some, or income, sorry, what percent of income compared to the average was some small town in Appalachia, which is probably all white people, and what percent is that today? Because I'd be shocked if it's any better, you know what I mean? So... Like, I just feel like money seems to have, like, I just get somewhat uncomfortable using, like, wealth and income as the outcome we're looking for. Because I feel like that's, I would guess that's true across, like, across groups. Like, how much income did Hispanics make 50 years ago to today? Or, does that make sense? Um, I mean, not somewhat, not exactly. I mean, I, I feel like there's there's a lot to the the numbers that that matt shared um well like i guess so i put it this way so like just independent or yeah independent of race like do you think if you broke down groups into like regions of the country or just groups if you could somehow classify you're the top 25 middle 20 50 or lower 25 like do you think that those groups changed at all like that makes sense like if your parents, if your parents, um, oh, like if oh. your parents are wealthy, you're um, probably going to be wealthy. Sure. If your parents are poor, you're probably going to be poor. Um, so like when I, anytime I hear like income stuff, I just, to me, that's not like an outcome that would be super. And maybe there's like underlying problems, but I don't know. I just don't seem to, that, that does seems like a less convincing outcome for me, I guess, if that makes sense. Uh, maybe they changed, maybe they didn't, but to me that doesn't, I mean, 61% or 63%, whatever it was, uh, I, that's that's still a, still a big difference. I mean, okay, it hasn't changed because nothing else has changed. Well, that, whatever. Um, yeah, okay, Here here's sort of another, like, elephant in the room. Sorry, I, I just want to play on that real quick because I just want to get your thoughts. I actually want to understand it. So, like, okay, okay. <clears throat> say that one more time, what you just said. So, like... Okay, so you, you seem to be saying... Jumping from 56% to 61%. It's like, well, you shouldn't make too much of a deal out of that because, like, look at what the income or wealth um, metrics, how those changed for 50 years in Appalachia. Those, like, hardly changed, too. So it's like you just you can't do anything about it. That seemed to be, like, what you were getting at. I'm not saying you can't do anything about it. I'm more saying, like, <clears throat> like when you're looking at, like, root causes, if that makes sense. So... If you're going to say, you know, their income didn't change, so racism didn't change. But I feel like that's probably true. Like, oh, So, like, yeah. if you pick a group of, and we'll say white people because white people have the most money. But, like, if pick selected group of any race, like, I bet their income also didn't mm. change, if that makes sense. Um, it seems like the wealth yep. just, like, wealth seems to breed yeah, wealth I... or hurt you is seemingly true across all races. So like when I hear that is the outcome, I just, I don't, 
I mean, yeah, and I, maybe I sort of right. see what you're saying better. I guess it, yeah. To me, to me, that doesn't say that we're just as racist. Uh, to me, that right. means that there are right, right. very prevalent echoes of right. past racism. That's I guess what I'm trying to say. So like, that, it's, like it's hard to fix now. Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of yeah. Okay, so here here's. I mean, I I think that it seems that we're all saying something to the effect of it's like, um, there are there's there's very complicated reason nuanced reasons for for why oh gosh man there's complicated nuanced reasons for why black people tend to have poor outcomes in the United States okay. Let's just accept that that's what we're all essentially saying. But even even if we make great points, and I think this is sort of well, even even if we make great, interesting, even accurate points, we are still, and this gets at the like just the human heart, just the core of everything. We're still three white guys who don't know what it's like to live as a minority for 50, 70, 80, 90 years, or is a woman like it's, and that's just period. Like, and that, that's, yeah. Um, there, there are, there are in this. Yeah. Again, goes to like just giving, um, points or acknowledgement or like certain, um, just, nods i guess to wokeness like there are certain ways that white guys just act in the world and are perceiving the world that there's just there's an advantage to that and like speaking like with women and i'm gonna say there's i i don't think this is sexist say this is just speaking for observation but but when i substitute teaching you know like i definitely like used my physicality to have a certain amount of control in the room like no i was not pressing kids up against the wall but no just simply like the way you walk into a room it's like yeah i'm a guy so that means i'm taller than most people i'm a little bit taller for a guy too right so six two and just being conscient a conscientious person okay so scoring points for conscientiousness like you walk into the room you make intentional eye contact with everyone you walk in with shoulders back and just move with intentionality like your first 40 seconds that you're in the room and you've gained an automatic advantage to accomplishing all of the goals you went into the room that that the guy is gonna have that that like a girl doesn't and it's you know it's like what's and with with the like a black person who would walk into that room, a lot of those kids are probably thoughtless kids who are going to attach what they think about black person a black excuse me a black person they attach it to that guy or girl and they're going to have a certain greater or less amount of respect for that person that that person that substitute teacher in this case like has to deal with has to be burned with even if they are more capable of dealing with reality even than i am but because of that like, that first like 30 seconds in that classroom difference like the 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 white guy in this situation like has the advantage like that and that that's that's one of the elephants in the room 
that I think is a very fair statement of white guy privilege that I don't think is it's it's a a fair again acknowledgement from wokeness that I think more white guys can say it's like yeah I definitely think there's I know Ross you you can't walk into a room tall but I mean that's a joke but I actually think that kind of is like I agree with a lot of what you're saying so I don't want to sound like a oh, I don't agree that white guys have privilege. But at this, I mean, so I'll put that out there first. But like for your example, would a five, six chubby guy have the same command of the room when he walks in? Like, you know what I mean? Like of what you're presenting, well, like, I'm just thinking out loud. And maybe I'm wrong, I guess. But like in in that example, like, yeah. Well, obviously it's a spectrum, right? It's like, yeah, there's certain black guys or black women or white women. Yeah, right. the first 30 seconds they walk into a room, you know, because they score more points on right. all these different things, the matrix they're talking about, like, yeah, they have more command. But just, yeah, in white whiteness is in a certain sense a blank slate. Um, yeah. Yeah. All ever yeah, everything else equal. Yeah, I'll give you that. That um, whiteness yeah. would have a like an advantage. <clears throat> and I mean, I guess that that sort of to put a, a fine point to my point. It's like I think that sort of goes along again with the acknowledgement of equal outcomes being always something to be seriously like looked at and considered. It's like. Yeah, I, th- I think it would go a long way for white guys to say, like, yeah, there's there's definite obviously not everything is is white privilege. But yeah, certain things you're you're definitely right. And I do use it to my advantage, like not in an aggressive negative way. But if in the case of substitute teach, like I have a responsibility to make sure these students don't abuse each other and accomplish whatever goals um, or assignments that the teacher like asked me to do like you you gotta do what it takes to accomplish that goal you, what what are you gonna do like walk in with like your shoulder slouched and like looking at the floors and make sure that you don't have an advantage over the less capable people that walk in it's like <laughs> it's obviously goofy see this is where like i and i i told like yeah there there are certain there's absolute like benefits and advantages, yeah, like we said. Um, but I think if you go too far down that road, that can be tricky too. Um, like to the point where like, are you saying that black people don't have virtues that are advantageous? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm not. I know that's not what you're saying. You know, but like. Is there not something unique about like black culture um, that might like be a dip like again like historical advantages are one thing but like modern like just kind of right here and now like it's not like being black um, I don't know I yeah I feel like if you go too far down the road of like oh white people are definitely have an advantage they're way better at everything you know like that like Whoa, that's terrifying. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it, it becomes. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I, and like, no one, no one really argues to that extreme, but it's like it really kind of like touches it in weird ways. Like, I know, 
at one point, I want to say it was the Smithsonian, came up with like a list of like, um, of like white privilege behaviors, and they said like being on time. What like, really? Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I would have to. Yeah, maybe we'll fact check this. But it, it was like, yeah, they and they eventually like took it down off their site and whatever. But it was like um, delayed gratification, like just very oh basic gosh. things yeah, that wild. was like. And they're like, oh, these are like things that white people traditionally value. So like, you know, it's kind of racist to like hold these as like the standards. And it's like, well, holy smokes, man! Like you're, <laughs> like they, I don't know if they like. I don't know if they didn't think about what they're saying, but yeah, I, I guess like if you go too far down that road and like, that's, I would say of, of the, yeah, I guess of the more meaningful interactions I've had with like regarding race, like that's, that is one thing I've heard. I, I have heard like black people say is that like, they think that some of this goes too far in terms of like, they're, I mean, it, it can feel denigrating to their race if they're like, oh, yeah, you're hopeless. Right. You know, like, yeah, yeah you don't really have a chance. You can't keep up with these white people. You know, like, yeah. I, I mean, I've there's a line there somewhere. Well, I don't know exactly where it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, I like, think that it's uh, – we. I, th- I think that it's fair to say we sort of socially exist in this sort of, like, middle ground where where – society like sort of accepts like these two sort of opposing things to be true where there's so many like things you're like semi afraid to say Rasa don't podcast scared though it's like where where minorities need to be both seen as like victims and not victims at the same time right but like how sustainable is that perspective like I feel like everything has to slide ultimately to some sort of like wall. And yeah, to what you're saying, man, I think there is something to that, that whether it's, it's people of color or even just like kids in general, kids like seeing themselves as just victims because they're a kid that that's the direction that society is going in. Yeah. Obviously that's not, not good or sustainable or or tenable whatever for for um yeah for marginalized groups to to uh for for victimization to be to be institutionalized so i did find the so this is from the uh african-american smithsonian museum and they, they just have, like, aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture. And that, that's where they list, like, um, things like individuals are assumed to be in control of their environment. The nuclear family, father, mother, and 2.3 children is the ideal social unit. <laughs> does it really um, say 2.3? <laughs> it does say 2.3. That's I assume that's, like, the average whatever. Oh, yeah, but, it's still... but hard work is the key to success. That's whiteness, apparently, you know. Work before play. If you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. Um, but yeah, so anyway, you can read the rest of it. But, like, I feel like stuff like that is, like, well, some of that's just – some of it's true, right? And you can argue whether it's true or not. But, like, I feel like ideas don't have races. <laughs> you know, like, maybe there's things that are more or less uh, part of, like, one culture versus another. Like, that much I think is is fair to say, but – 
I don't know. I, I guess like there there are things like that that kind of like. Well, it's like I wanted. To th- I mean, you could you could see the KKK making that same chart. You know what I mean? Like to say like white people are yeah, superior. Yeah, that's an interesting. You know, point. like which is like. Yeah. Um, that's like the the weird part, you know, and that's the part that I, I've heard, yeah, like I, I have heard black people like just on the ground, not like commentators, not journalists or politicians, like just like people on the ground saying that like. I don't know if I like the way people talk about this, you know. Dr. King, next part of the speech. I was literally just about to say, (laughs) I feel like we're we're starting to get really into the depths and having, it seems like, a little difficulty, like putting a really perfect point on it, um, which is probably why there hasn't been a perfect point put on it. Um, But... Fun fun fact though, the shortest white guy in NBA history is Mel Hirsch. He was five foot six. No, curious. Muggsy Bogues was five three. Was, I said shortest oh. white guy. <laughs> yeah. So so if you wanted oh, to make the white with it's you, man. white guy. He forgot about the other ones. <laughs> if you wanted, yeah, Muggsy Bogues is the shortest player in the NBA. But if you wanted your um, you know, racially distributed NBA. We need more five six guys. I'm just saying, we're not that uncommon. Okay. What if you did a height distributed NBA Hall of there'd Fame? Be, and you just take yeah. the best ten players at each height. I mean, Muggsy I'm going to just say you like, wouldn't have heard of the guys that were five ten. You probably have heard of the guys that were six eight. <laughs> just throwing it out. Spud Webb. He was five uh, five something. Five five. Yeah, I think 5'5", five, five and he won dunk. the dunk contest. 5'7". Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've got a list here. He, he was 4'6". I mean, <laughs> I mean, Muggsy Bogues, like, he was no – like, he was a starter, I think. And he averaged, like, 14 yeah, no, points a, a game. Like, that's insane. Yeah, the, yeah the, the kid just can't, can't appreciate. And he was in Space Jam. The alien stole his talent. He was so good. <laughs> So let's bring it back to um, Dr. King to, to close it up then. So what about – Yeah. All right. So racism is a problem. It's complicated. It's complex. There's other things too, and not to get too like history class, but like what about him was special or like why do we have Martin Luther King Day, you know, and not any other day? Not Malcolm X Day, <laughs> Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman – Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I know. I mean, that's that's a useful uh, point to point to add. That didn't we do a Frederick Frederick Douglass speech? We did. Sli- sort of. It was that oh, didn't get was, recorded. Or, or that we it like, was like got in lost a group or something. Of speeches. Um. It was in during the the, oh, the Making okay. of America series. Yeah. Oh. Did that one ever get published or no? I wasn't there. No one sent me the recording. Oh, maybe it got lost. That was it another was, one yeah. that got lost. It was lost. part of like a four-speech episode, I believe. So, yeah. Why do we have MLK okay. Day? Anyway. We have ML- Can I make another suggestion for the roundabout? Go ahead. How how do you have your the race conversation with your kids? Maybe take take that racist experience that you jotted down, and then how do you talk talk with your kid about it? 
my kids are pretty young still, so <clears throat> my kids are six, four, two, and in the womb. So I feel like our and maybe I guess my six year old we could start going more in depth. Maybe maybe I need I'm behind the ball there, but um. Well, wait, it doesn't have to be now. It's in in the oh, future. Well, I, was, I was gonna say I mean for young kids I think it's my, I read your question is my kids now so I was going with more of the some people got treated worse because of their skin color and that was not good and. Um, I feel like it's going to get much harder as they get older and maybe start to not question, but just see or realize the different <clears throat> privileges or complexities or like kind of the, some of the stuff we're talking about. Um, so I think how to have it with them would probably, I think the driving factor would be kind of like we said, like judging the heart, but you know, like, um, Dr. King kind of talked about the content of the character. Just trying to really hammer that part out is, um, you know, don't, you have to see them just as a person first. And I think that's probably how I would start the conversation. So I think, I think Ross, your question about like, why is MLK, um, yeah, why do we have MLK Day? Like, why does he kind of stand out as like the figurehead on that front? is probably like I think a very similar answer to like how would I talk to my kids about it like because I think he gets in this speech as well as just like in his other writings and works and things like I think to the heart of the issue that we all want it to we like want everyone else to see us as God sees us right in a way we're fully appreciated loved understood respected um, and it's one thing if we're like misunderstood or underappreciated um, for things that like we do or said or didn't do like things that are that are under our control or our fault to some degree but like yeah i think it is particularly painful and uh dehumanizing to like do that for to someone for something they cannot control for something that like like their race or for kind of like yeah their disabilities for their background, you know, their ethnicity, you know, if we're not if we're talking about those as two separate things like whatever it is that they like that's not their thing that's not in their control like yeah you can't and you should never hold that against someone right um and like that's how god sees us that's how we should treat everybody um but yeah i think we do need to be like um i think you uh yeah uniquely aware of our country's history and um the inequality that exists among races but also among other like demographic lines um, but like, yeah, I mean, I think the reason things get messy now is because our culture can't use God as the center for all of this, you know, like our, we don't have that language and that like common understanding that, um, that God sees us a certain way yeah. and, um, we need to therefore like see everyone else that same way. Um, like regardless of their race. Right. So like that's um, but also like appreciate. Yeah, like appreciate where they come from and like take their experience um, to heart as well. You know, and that's something like I don't know, I guess just to get like maybe a little more to the heart you know, of individuals like just conversations with patients like I have 
never, I mean, I've been making small talk as a PT for three years in the Chicago suburbs, um, working with mostly white people. Um, I don't think I've heard a single one of them say that their, their son or daughter was shot and killed. Like, I've been working here in Peoria with, like, a much larger black population, and I've had three that I remember people say that their son or daughter was shot and killed. And, like, all of them were black, right? Um, so, like, yeah, it, it's the type of thing that, yeah, I mean, obviously you're not going to, I mean, I wouldn't tell that de detail to your kids when they're young, you know, but, like, I don't know, like, I don't know what age-appropriate things are. You know, I guess I'll probably figure it out once they're, you know, a little more detail once they are come to, like, the right age. But, um, but yeah, like, the heart of the issue is, like, see everybody, like, no exceptions, like, as God sees them. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that when one has has good parents, right? You know, they teach them, they teach them the things that you guys, uh, exactly just mentioned. But I think even within that, um, uh, corpus of communication, there can still percolate in kind of, um, ways of, ways of talking about others that sort of begins to generate its own sort of like, uh, generate its own sort of like racial philosophy. Um, I, I, I've heard people, um, whom I know talk about and which is obviously like just that's just disgusting now now it was said in like an environment where they're obviously like we're no black people and i don't think this black or i'm sorry this person would like think of them as a racist but but they're uh, yeah like that sentence is disgusting but i don't feel like it's particularly like abnormal either among your quote-unquote like average average white guy like saying things like that even ones who are probably like become woke like a week later something like that and i i think maybe the most tidy like lesson there is thinking about how we we tend to think that we observe reality and then we use language to describe it right like reality is fixed and then language just simply like flows from what we observe and one of the things I explained uh, to my students when we went through the Ten Commandments, um, um, what was the which which commandment is don't use God's name in vain? What whatever commandment that was, right? And a lot of people like struggle with that commandment, or like don't even care at all that it exists. And so many times, like you know, you hear people like, "Oh my God, oh my God, whatever, goddamn, something like that." And I always thought it's like interesting. Like I'm pretty sure this case with you guys and my other sets of friends. Like, yeah, we I, we curse appropriately. Like, make something funny or whatever, make a point. But like, we don't say God's name in vain. It's like, gosh damn it, or you know, because because there's a respect for like language. And okay, so set that aside. And I'm sure you guys have heard before. Like the French, they have like 50 different words for like pink. You guys heard that before? 
or like or like different tribes around Alaska. You know, you heard they have like fifty different words for snow or something like that. And the point is, it's like, especially with that that bit on like the French. I remember sharing with the students like this TED talk. Point is, is that the French did not make up from what they learned from the study. They did not make generate 50 words based upon the 50 colors of pink that they saw. The fact that they use 50 words to describe pink gives them the capacity to see 50 different shades of pink, right? The point is, is that language gives us the capacity to interpret reality and not always the other way. It goes both ways. And I think that a lot of people who who feed that sort of space rightly criticized by the woke, you know, with microaggression or just saying things like um, think things like that. Like, well, 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 if I say something like this to my friends, like, oh, it's no big deal. As long as I don't say it out, you know, out in like mixed company, but like, no, you saying things like that like will make you believe it and of course that's also true like with women when you call women chicks or that woman's like smoking hot or like that will make you believe that that's how women are you know you can't can't compartmentalize your brain um like that so yeah i think that would be like the the next level up conversation um and then we would go on our our initiation ritual event and become a man or woman. I listened to that podcast from Art Mainless you guys were talking about. Oh, that was, yeah. That's I listened good. to it twice. That was really good. But yeah, that's like I think that's how I'd go about John Tyson. It was, I think. Yeah. Um, something about becoming a man. Yeah. Look it up. It was like, uh, yeah, like initiate, like being in like an intentional, intentional dad in terms of like initiating your son into. I'm pretty like confident I read the Okay. Oh, good. Okay. Covered some race uh, stuff there. Next episode, we got uh, myself hosting speeches by prophets. I don't have the speech yet, but maybe Al Gore, but I'd like to go a little bit further back. Find find some earlier uh, speaker on the impending gloom and doom of uh, climate change. So, till then, thank you for listening, and thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. Cue the music. better play